Thank you, Brenton Offenbach and Byron Graves. I don't think I've ever heard such a peppy and joyful rendition of Down by the Riverside. So that was, I was blessed by that. Thank you so much. Hey, also just wanted to say congratulations to our Andrews University students who this afternoon, this weekend, they're having a virtual commencement ceremony. So congratulations to all the Andrews students. We love you. The best is yet to come. With that being said, why don't we bow our heads together as we ask for God's blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those that are gathered here locally. Thank you for all those that are watching online right now. Hundreds in time, even thousands watching. As always, Father, we just pray once again in the name of Jesus that you would fill this place and every person watching with your spirit. Grant us that special blessing of your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to share with you four principles on how to run the 100-yard dash because you never know when that skill will come in handy. All right? Four skills. This is by marathon coach Allison McDougall. Number one principle on how to get it done is, first of all, maintain your top speed. Now, look, there's some different stages to running races like this. The first one is the get the launching, the start phase. You launch off the block, and then there's the accelerating phase. And finally, you get to the plateau phase. This is where you really want to seek to maintain your top speed during that plateau phase. But second of all, you want to maintain proper form. You want to ensure as best as possible that your biomechanics stay in good shape because once you get out of form, that's actually when you begin to slow down and you don't want to do that. Third, you lean forward before the finish line. Now, this is called the lean oftentimes, and you've seen this in races as people are about to cross the finish line. What is it that you see them do? They throw their arms back and they lean forward like this and they kind of push their chest out. Now, this is really important. It's not just to look interesting or cool. In fact, doing just this can be the difference between finishing in first place and not meddling at all. I mean, sometimes it just comes down to fractions of a second. And so knowing when to do it at the right time, when you're right about to cross the finish line, you want to lean and push forward just a little bit. And finally, you want to continue past the finish line. In other words, the finish line is not where you're supposed to stop. You don't slow down before you get to the finish line. You want to maintain your speed. You want to run as fast as you can so you can push through, lean at the finish line for a picture-perfect finish. Now, look, that's four strategies on how to run the 100-yard dash. You're welcome in advance. I'm just telling you, you'll need that skill surely one day. But I want to share with you something that you should never, ever do. I'm warning you. It's one of the cardinal sins of sports. It's foboten. You ready? Don't ever do this. Never celebrate early. I mean, have you seen any of those videos on YouTube, that compilations of people celebrating early? If not, tomorrow morning, check it out. It's sad, but funny. 
too many people, before they cross the finish line, they begin to relax just a little bit. They begin to celebrate. And often enough, they begin to lose. Oh, did Tengai Pepiat learn that lesson all too well? It was the 2015 Pepsi Invitational. He was representing the University of Oregon. It was a 3,000 meter steeplechase run. That's the one where they run over these little barriers. And he just, he had the race on lockdown. He was doing exceptionally well. And so it was when he was seemingly about 50 feet from the finish line, the inevitable happened. He began to put his hands up in a celebratory way. And not just that, pride kind of got to him, I think, in that moment. He began to do this thing. He was still running, of course, but he had slowed down just enough. He began to do this thing to hype up the crowd a little bit and to kind of bask in that moment of finishing first place. Oh, but right behind him, University of Washington's Marin Simon. He did not let up for one moment. In fact, if you watch the video, in that kind of split second of time, he actually began to speed up, it looks like, so much to the extent that right before crossing the finish line, Marin Simon, he leaned forward, running as fast as he can, snapshot finish, he won first place. I mean, it's kind of sad, and you can just see how painful it was for Ten Guy Pepiat when he realized what had happened. He didn't run hard. He didn't run fast. He slowed down right before the finish line. I want to talk to you for a few moments today of what to watch for when you're crossing the finish line. Now, look, I think most of us have a sense that we are in perhaps some of the final closing chapters of Earth's history. That's my conviction, anyway. To use a Daniel chapter 2 metaphor, I don't believe we're just in the kind of leg phase, the fourth phase. I believe we're increasingly getting towards the tippy toes of final prophecy, towards the last chapters of Earth's history. I honestly believe that that's my conviction. So the question is, as we are preparing to cross over into the heavenly Canaan, are there things that we need to be on the lookout for? Are there things that we need to be watching out for? I believe the answer to that is yes. By the way, if you're just joining us, last week we talked about the topic of why God allows delays. And we discovered that delays are actually opportunities to develop your faith. Some of you were here. You might remember that story. We looked at that story in Numbers chapter 14, where the Israelites got to the border of Canaan, but they did not have faith sufficient to stand up to giants. They were afraid. They rebelled. They did not want to cross into Canaan. And so God said, I need now to initiate a little bit of a delay. For your own benefit, I'm going to initiate a 40-year deferment so that you can learn to follow me and you can learn to develop faith during this desert time of your life. But what we want to do today is we want to fast forward almost 40 years from there. We want to move into the future and we want to see what happened to the Israelites after their 40-year time in the desert. I want to invite you to pick up the story in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Numbers chapter 22, verse 1, and it reads, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab 
on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. So there they are, camped out for a period of time. They're east of the Jordan. This was going to be the staging ground for their conquest of Canaan. And it was during that time period that the king of Moab saw this huge number of Israelites and he got scared. So he called his friend, the former prophet by the name of Balaam. The reason why I say former prophet Balaam is because I think scripture gives an indication that Balaam at one point was a prophet of God. But then as, you know, according to what scripture said, he began to love the wages of wickedness. He began to hire himself out as a kind of mercenary prophet for hire. She said, you, you got some funds? You want me to curse some people? You want me to bless some people? Whoever is the highest bidder, I'll go to you and I'll, I'll bless whoever you want me to bless. I will curse whoever you want me to curse. He was selling himself out as a mercenary prophet for hire. So there the, the king, Balak, the king of Moab said, we need your help pronto right now. Please come. So he comes. He surveys the encampment of the Israelites. And notice what it says in Numbers chapter 24, verse 5 and 6. Balaam, the former prophet speaking now. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedar beside Cedars beside the waters. In other words, Israel was the picture of discipline and order. Each camp there in perfect order by its flag, by its standard. And there in the midst of the entire multitude of a million plus people was the presence of God, the sanctuary right in the middle. And he looked, he wanted perhaps to be able to curse them, but he said, look, God has forbidden me. I can only speak what God gives me permission to speak in this instance. He wanted to listen in this instance anyway to the voice of God. And he could only but speak a blessing as he saw the perfect order and the discipline of Israel. And it makes sense. I mean, there they had been for 40 years in the desert, learning to follow God and obey him in the desert. So here's the question. What was the enemy of souls to do? I mean, the first time around when they got to the border of Canaan 40 years earlier, he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put giants in their faces and that's going to intimidate them. And guess what? It worked. They said, we are as grasshoppers in their sight. Get us out of this place. So the devil said, look, now they seem to be orderly and disciplined. I've got to use a little bit of a different strategy now. Something else. Look, the truth is that, you know this just as well as I do, the devil is a crafty creature, isn't he? Have you noticed that to the Christian, he never appears as a devil? Never. Never. To people seeking a devil, he appears that way. But to the, to the believer, to the Christian, he never appears as a devil. He always appears in some other form. In fact, scripture reveals to us that to the believer, he appears as an angel of light. 
surely come on some kind of noble and positive errand, perhaps to bring a blessing to the people of God. That's how the devil shows up in a very crafty, kind of subtle way. So the question is, what kind of strategy 40 years later would the enemy of souls, would the devil now employ in order to block the people of God from receiving their inheritance and fulfilling their destiny in Canaan? Well, the fascinating thing is that the Bible reveals to us what Balaam was thinking and what Balaam actually recommended. You know, hear about it? It's recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Revelation 2, verse 14. This is now Jesus with insight into the mind of Balaam. And notice what he says. He's speaking here to the church in Pergamos. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what's the doctrine of Balaam? What's the strategy of Balaam? Who taught Balak, that's the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the the children of Israel. How? What does the Bible say? To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So check this out church, please notice the satanically influenced strategy of Balaam. Would he send a large mercenary army of giants to try to repel them from the outside? No. Much too obvious. Instead, this this requires a deeper level of strategy, a deeper level of evil, a deeper level of cunning, perhaps. Instead of trying to repel them physically from the outside, I'm going to cut them off at the knees. I'm going to destroy them sensually from the inside. So there was that proposition from Balaam, recommendation to the king of Moab, Balak, But the question is, did he actually implement that strategy? And if he did, how did it go? Well, the interesting thing, for those in business school, we've got a case study right here that we can study. For the rest of us in our theological business school, as it were, I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 through 4. We're going to spend the remainder of our time camped right here. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 through 4. We're going to see the implementation of the strategy of the devil. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders. Other people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Look, there's a lot that's in that scripture. We're going to take some time to walk through it slowly, but I want you to, I want to kind of simplify for you the devil's strategy that we see noted here in the scripture. We'll put it up on the screen. This is the devil's strategy. This is what's implemented, what we see in that scripture there. First of all, it's subtle. He says, look, just, we're going to send some women from Moab. We're going to send some women in from Midian, and they're going to make friends. 
And they served as kind of these reverse missionaries, as it were. And there was no need for alarm, of course. They're just hanging out. Nothing to write home to mom about. We're just being friends. We're just hanging out. As subtle as it could be. Oh, but it was also spiritual, don't you see? It, it involved food. It involved worship. Now, look, church, if, if you invite me, say, hey, Rodley, I want to invite you. We're going to have some food and we're going to have some worship. I'm thinking, hey, that sounds like a good time to me. I'm all about food and worship. That sounds good. Finally, it involves sensual sin. So I imagine the conversation, perhaps, after some time of friendship had ensued, some of these women to some of these men. Hey, do you, do you want to join us? We're going to have some, some worship. We're going to have some food. It's going to be, it's going to be great. You'll really enjoy it. Oh, we're going to, we're going to worship God? Sort of. Yeah, just, just come. You'll see. I imagine them not giving enough information to invite assent. They, they gave enough information to invite assent, but not enough to raise concern, I imagine. And so they come. And scripture tells us what happened. And it says they were joined to Baal of Peor. Now look, so that we can feel the weight and the enormity of this sin, we need to break down a few of the details in this story. We need to find out who or what is Baal of Peor. So I need you to hang with me, listen closely for a few minutes here. First of all, Baal in the Bible is kind of a generic term oftentimes for a pagan Canaanite god. All right? Baal. Literally, it means Lord or Master. So it says Baal of Peor. Peor was a physical location. It was a mountaintop. In fact, according to Numbers chapter 23, verse 29, Peor was the location where the Moabite king Balak took Balaam so that from that high place he could curse Israel. So the Bible here says they enjoined themselves to Baal of Peor. Now, most scholars agree that this was more likely than not actually referring to the Moabite deity by the name of Chemosh. Now, let me tell you a little bit about that Moabite deity, all right? Because it's pretty bad. There was two main things, at least two main things that were involved in worship, the ritual worship and practice towards this particular God. One is One thing is what's known as sacred or temple prostitution. You can figure that one out. That's what took place in the story. They invited these men back to their God, back to their turf, back to their hometown. And we say, hey, look, we, we worship a little differently here. We want to invite you to partake. <laughs> okay. So worship to Chemosh involved temple or, or ritual prostitution. But if there's a possible way to tear or grade sins, it, it almost seems to get even worse. Because it also involved child sacrifice. Well, how do we know this? Well, according to 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 27, there's a story there where it says the king of Moab offered his child in sacrifice to Chemosh. 
So this was something, this was part of worship of this particular God, the Moabite God. Temple prostitution and child sacrifice. So here they are at the finish line. They're ready to cross over into Canaan. And instead of sending some kind of strong force to repel them, instead he sends this super subtle hook-like sin to destroy them from the inside. He, he offers up to them the temptations of sensuality and appetite. Now, look, I, I want to give just a little bit of perspective on this story because what I do not want to try to make it seem like I'm communicating is that, you know, there's these, that women are temptresses and here's these men that are just kind of innocently following along and whoops, I fell to that temptation. No, that's not what we're seeing here in this story. In fact, I want to zoom out a little bit more so we can get a little bit more perspective on this sin. Because I think some of you today, some of you watching online right now, you're thinking to yourself, cool, I would never be involved in that. So that's not definitely something that I need to listen to. Rodley's talking about something that doesn't apply to me. Uh, I want to beg you to differ. Hang with me for just a moment. Look, at, look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, please. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. I think we've got it on the screen here. Notice what the Bible says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So here, the Apostle John, the, the youngest when he became a disciple, he was the one that outlived all the other disciples. Here he's essentially categorizing all sins into one of three possible buckets. Does that make sense? So here he's saying, look... It, they fall into one of three areas. It's either lust of the flesh, it's either lust of the eyes, or it's pride of life. That's it. And I really like how Juzri Girgis summarizes these three categories of sin. Here's how he summarizes them. I think it makes it a little easier to understand. Because lust of the flesh sounds very abstract. He says lust of the flesh refers to what? refers to sensual pleasure. We're going to define that in just a moment. He said, lust of the eyes refers to acquisitional pleasure. So you trying to acquire, wanting to acquire things and get things. And pride of life refers to recognitional pleasure. I want my name to be in lights. I want my name to be recognized. I want to be known. So let's define sensual pleasure. Sensual, first of all, are those things dealing with the senses. Right? So those things that I can see, that I can taste, that I can feel, those things that I can experience. That, that's what it means when it's talking about sensual pleasure. Now look, I'm not trying to say pleasure is bad. There is such a thing, I believe, as holy pleasure. God gave us these senses for a reason. In fact, you can ask Yvette, my wife, sometimes when I'm at the breakfast table or perhaps when we're having lunch, I will eat something, maybe you do this as well. Something will so strike my tongue. Something will taste so good. You're going to think I'm weird after this, but it's okay. I literally close my eyes and my hands creep up like this. <laughs> I kid you not. Ask my wife or my boys because they say, oh, there goes Papa again doing his thing. I'm telling you, I really enjoy 
eating. I love food. And God gave us these wonderful taste buds. And so, so, you know, I believe that's holy pleasure. Sometimes you could, I taste something and I just, I just kind of worship in that moment. But look, let's not confuse things at all. What we have here in the story is not that. This story is not about physical intimacy. This is about adultery and fornication and idolatry. This is not about getting together among friends in in a nice fellowship and communion and enjoying a meal. This is about worshiping demons. Have no doubt. And I want you to notice how God reacted. Notice what the Bible says. Numbers chapter 25, verse 3 and 5. It says, so Israel was joined. By doing those things, they were joined to Baal of Peor. Well, what does that mean? I mean, that's the word in the original for being yoked. W-O-K-E-D. To being yoked. You know what a yoke is? It's an implement, it's a tool that's used to harness two animals together that are partnering together towards the same mission. Come on, church, listen up, listen up. It says by partaking and participating in these acts, they had become yoked to the devil and or these demons. By the way, don't forget, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. She says, I want you to partner up with me. But this sin was so heinous, so horrible, so frightening that God says they have now yoked themselves. They have joined themselves. This is serious. This is bad. And it was used to devastating effect. The Bible says that 24,000 people ended up dying. Those that had enjoined themselves to Baal of Peor. God allowed a plague to come into the place. He said, this is just so heinous. Because what the people had done is they had symbolically rescinded their covenant relationship with Yahweh, the creator God, and they had symbolically ascended. They had symbolically signed up to a covenant relationship through these acts with these demons. So God says, look, I've got, I've got to send in a plague. We've got to get rid of this sin right here, right now. It's that horrible. The question is, I mean, what do we need to be watching out for when we are close to crossing the finish line? Have you ever noticed in your own life, I've noticed it in my own life, that perhaps sometimes you're going through some project, you're going through a season in your life, it's busy or difficult, and often enough, before you reach the finish line, sometimes it's after you reach the finish line, you kind of want to ease up a little bit. Have you noticed that? I mean, look, the season was so difficult, you feel like you want to reward yourself. You want to feel some joy and some happiness, perhaps. And so you choose some way to reward yourself. And that's when the devil shows up and says, hey, remember me? And he introduces into our lives these temptations of appetite. 
and sensuality. But here's the question. I mean, do you suppose that this was a one-off temptation for the devil? What do you think? Do you suppose that he rolled the dice of his, of his temptations and it hit a double, the perfect number, and he said, cool, okay, that worked. Do you suppose that this was a random experiment by the devil that just happened to go his way? The answer is no. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we find evidence of the very first sin that humans succumbed to was what? It was based on the sin of appetite. Remember that one? Yeah. Oh, no. Have no doubt. This was a time-tested, honed, refined strategy and temptation. That the devil didn't just use it to much success all the way in Genesis chapter 3 and said, oh, we got to keep this baby going. We got to keep bringing it back. It worked so good. Now, the first time around, let's use giants. Okay, that seemed to work well. But now they're at a different place. You're expecting giants. I've got to be a little bit more sneaky. Got to be a little bit more subtle. Now I know what will really get them. Let me introduce temptations of appetite and sensuality. Can I remind you of the story of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11? Is that okay? Let me read it for you. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But what? But what, church? But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked to the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So the Bible tells us where exactly he should have been. Where should, he, where should he have been? Well, I mean, the, the scripture tells us, it gives us the answer. It says it was, it was the time of the season in which kings go out to battle. He should have been manning his station. He should have been at attention, leading the army, directing the war. Should have been at his post. But instead, I mean, look, he had the kingdom firmly established in his hands. And he just thought to himself, Joab and the boys, they kind of know what they're doing. I'm going to relax just a little bit now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang back. I think I deserve to reward myself this time around. And he goes to the top of the roof there and, and he sees this woman bathing by the way. She's innocent in this party. He took her. There was an unequal relationship at work here. He decided to take her and kill the husband. What's happening? It's the, it's the sin of appetite and sensuality. Can I remind you of the story of Solomon? It says, for 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 through 8, it says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. Remember him? Talked about him a little while ago. He's the deity of the Moabites. 
The one involved in child sacrifice? Yeah, that one. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burnt incense and sacrificed to their gods. Help me, church. Did you read what I just read? It's the same kind of temptation. It's, it's subtle. So strategic. And notice this, when Solomon was old, you see, Solomon, he was already the richest man in the world. He was already the wisest man in the world, but pride began to get to him. And he said, you know what, I need just a little bit more. Instead of following the mandates of God, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but hey, ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, you got a cute daughter I can hang with? Why don't we establish a political alliance? I will protect you. You will protect me. We'll have a really nice political trade relationship going on. Oh, by the way, uh, king of the Sidonians, you, you have any uh, cute daughters I can hang with? And he began sinfully walking on territory that he should not have been walking on. And look, I mean, it starts off innocently enough, right? Notice it says, after he was old. They didn't introduce this at the beginning. They wanted to get on his good side. They wanted to hook him as deeply as they could. That's how the devil does it. That's what happens with these sins of appetite and sensuality. And, but then they said, oh, honey. Yes? I've got a favor to ask you. Even on half of my kingdom. What is it? You know, I mean, you have this beautiful temple. Would you mind if it doesn't have to be as pretty as yours, doesn't have to be as fancy, just a little something here for Molech or for Chemosh. And I don't know what that decision process was like for Solomon, but scripture records that he said, okay. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound very controversial. It may shock some of you, but it's absolutely true. Okay? Solomon is absolutely complicit in the heinous murders of untold thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of children and kids that were offered up in child sacrifice. I'm sorry if that offends you, but it's true. He was absolutely complicit through his example, through supporting these temples being built. So much so that the Bible tells us that a few generations later, King Ahaz, the Bible says he was doing as his fathers had done, the kings that had come before him. Do you know what it says that he did? He offered up his own son in the fire. What does that mean? Child sacrifice. Solomon is complicit in the community of Israel moving to demon worship. I'm sorry, but it's true. He got comfortable. He, he had crossed the, the line. He said, I, I deserve to reward myself a little more than what I already have. Remember the example of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. He had been fasting for 40 days. And when is it that the devil decides to show up? 
right on the 40th day, as he was about to cross the finish line of his spiritual fast, the devil shows up with what kind of temptation? Do you remember the first one? Yeah, it was dealing with appetite. You guessed correctly. Look, if if you really are the son of God, do a trick for me. Command that these stones be turned into bread. I've come as an angel of light. Surely come bring this suggestion from the father. Just do it so you can save yourself. But you see, my friends, it's not just about the temptation. It's also about when it's deployed. Notice what Ellen White says in Patriarchs Patriarchs and Prophets. Fascinating quote here. She says, the season of inactivity that succeeds a great struggle is often fraught with greater danger than is the period of conflict. In other words, perhaps you've noticed this in your own life. Sometimes, even after you finish doing something amazing and powerful and great to further the kingdom of God, that is when the devil seeks to tempt us the hardest. He says, you're tired. You're trying to relax. I'm going to introduce these temptations into your life. So the question is, that's definitely what we want to be watching out for as we are on the border of the heavenly Canaan. Because the truth is that the devil is not going to slow down that temptation. Believe you me, he's simply going to ratchet it up every single month that passes. No, this is a winning strategy. You don't mess with success. Let's keep doing this. But what do we do? Turn with me. Revelation 14, verse 3 through 4. As you're turning there, in Revelation chapter 14, well, in Revelation chapter 13, we find this, the biggest test that humanity will ever be called to face, we read about in Revelation chapter 13. We don't have time to get into the details of it right now, but believe you me, church, every human that's alive will have to go through it. Sorry about that. There's no exclusion clause in that one. Every single person will have to either say yes or they will have to say no. Again, we don't have the time to get into it, but it's going to be the greatest trial that humans will ever have to face. And then all of a sudden in Revelation chapter 14 now, we find this remnant, this group of people that have survived that test of Revelation chapter 13. Notice what it says. And this is the strategy, by the way. This is our strategy that we have to implement to counteract the satanic strategy of the devil. You ready? Notice what it says. Revelation chapter 14, verse 3. It says, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who will follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you notice the strategy? The strategy, let's not confuse it. It's not about being physiological virgins and not getting married. The strategy is about becoming spiritual versions. What does that mean? Let me define it for you. A spiritual virgin is someone that has prioritized purity for the sake of staying focused on Christ. Let me say that again. A spiritual virgin is someone who has prioritized purity for the sake of remaining focused on Christ. Let me say it another way. A spiritual virgin 
is someone that has closed off every possible avenue to the soul except for Jesus. A spiritual virgin is he and she that can agree and say, as Philippians 4 verse 8 says in the Bible, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if if there's anything praiseworthy, yeah, those are the things I'm going to spend my time meditating on. Spiritual virgins are the people that agree with the psalmist in Psalm 119 where he said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Spiritual virgins are people that agree with Psalm 101, also from the psalmist, where he said, I will set nothing Wicked before my eyes. Can I share something to encourage you? Because I know we've talked about kind of some heavy things here today. Numbers chapter 16. Sorry, 26. Read it later. We're not, we don't have time to go there. Find a fascinating detail. You see, when the Israelites got to the border of Canaan, there were some people still alive from the previous faithless generation. Did you hear what I said? There were still some people alive when they got back there from the previous faithless generation. And so it was those people that lacked faith to begin with that said, there's no way that we can face these giants. It's those people that did not take advantage of the desert experience of their life to learn to follow God and to trust him. It's those same people that when they got to the border of Canaan, that they succumbed immediately to those temptations. And the Bible says, Numbers chapter 26, that there was not even one of them left after God sent his plague from the previous generation. They all fell. You know what the good news is? One word, two words, the remnant. Oh, but the remnant. Oh, but the remnant, church. In Revelation chapter 14, it pictures a people that are following the lamb wheresoever he goes, that have gone through this testing time in, the, in, in Israel. There was this group that had learned to follow Jesus in the desert experience of their life. They had learned to trust him. And they said, come what may in the future, we're just going to keep following Jesus. We have become spiritual versions. So when that testing time came at the border of Canaan, they said, nope, not today, devil. I'm going to keep following Jesus. The answer, the strategy, if you will, is for you and I to commit to being spiritual virgins, to cutting off every other avenue in our soul. So I simply want to ask you this question. Are there any avenues that you've left open to your soul right now? You know, normally at Pioneer, we give out connect cards. If you've been with us here before, we walk people through some next steps that you can go through some decisions. We believe everyone in every gathering where the word of God is taught, I believe that there should be some kind of invitation, some decision. I want to walk you through a few of those today. You don't have those in your hands. You're just going to have to listen well. So first next step, 
I want to memorize 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because look, maybe you've compromised your spirituality in some way. Maybe you have not been faithful to God as you should be. Maybe, maybe even yet still today, there's some avenues that you have yet left open in your life that allow those temptations to come in your way. Now, look, if you fall into some of those, then you need to claim that promise. Every Christian, I'm just telling you, every believer in Jesus Christ needs to memorize that Christian. One of the top, that scripture needs to memorize that scripture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just and will forgive us for our sins. You can claim that. You can pray it if you've fallen in some kind of error of your life. So that's the first one. I want to invite you to make that commitment to memorize. First John 1, 9. The second one is this. I want God's help to inventory my life and close off avenues to my soul. I want to invite you to take some time this afternoon, spend some time in prayer. I can just about guarantee you, though, that you're not going to have to spend a lot of time in prayer, though. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is so good at what he does that it's going to be pretty quick. You're going to know. You're like, yep, Holy Spirit. Yep, that's true. Right off the bat, here's some areas. Here's some avenues that I've left open to my soul that I need to shut down in the name of Jesus. Finally, I commit to following Jesus no matter what I face in the future. You know, for those watching online, for those gathered here in person, if, if you can agree to any one of those decisions, I want to invite you to just raise your hand to heaven right now. Just raise your hand wherever you are. If you can agree to any one of those decisions, God bless you. God bless you for those watching online. God bless you. I want to pray with you right now. Let's just bow our heads. Father, I thank you for your spirit that is with us now. I thank you for your convicting spirit that is moving across hundreds and thousands behind screens and iPads and laptops and TV screens and monitors and your spirit that's moving among here locally. And you're telling us what we need to do, what avenues to our soul we need to close off. So thank you for just doing your work and giving us the power to follow through with what you're convicting us to do. Lord, I just also thank you for the, the, the great, amazing news in the story that there is a remnant that had learned to follow you, a remnant that were obsessed with Jesus. They were following the lamb wheresoever he goes. And they said, we're going to starve every other avenue to our soul, save for Jesus. It's the only one I want to be focused on. And so I pray, Father, that that may happen for every single one of us within the sound of my voice. I pray. Grant us your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.